episode of the Classic Pickup Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Whips, and I hope you enjoy this episode. This podcast is sponsored by Classic Pickup Supplies, your number one Ford and Chev pickup parts supplier. Mention Classic Truck for a 10% discount off your first order. Classic Pickup Supplies, located in Coolum Beach, Queensland. Call 07 5446 2667. Or visit their website, www.classicpickupsupplies.com.au. Classic Pickup Supplies, dedicated to the restoration and preservation of the pickup. Episode 2, Coop's Rod and Custom. I caught up with Adrian Cooper at his workshop just north of Auburn, New South Wales. This episode was recorded in October last year and was the first real sit-down interview for the podcast. Our website is under construction and I'm hoping to put together a fairly comprehensive calendar of events for the pickup owners in the country. Once a month, I'll highlight up-and-coming shows on the podcast. So if you're organising a Rod and Custom show, a show and shine, maybe it's a special fundraiser, shoot me through an email and I'll add it to our calendar. Thanks again for listening and here's episode two. Dajian, thanks for taking the time to have a chat with us today. No worries. So tell us a bit about your business, Coops Rod and Custom. Um, so Coops Rod and Custom was uh, brought to life about two years ago. Um, I've had the business for a little while, but because I worked full time, it wasn't really um, up and running full steam until about two years ago when we actually made the decision to start advertising and, and put it out there. So the business is basically started off with everything from you know full rebuilds to to basically just any sort of engineering requirements that anybody needed for any particular vehicle. It wasn't really set on a particular type of vehicle. So we do everything from ground up rebuilds to just your normal touch up spray painting out the door uh, in full interiors. When we first opened up, I've, I've been building cars for oh, probably close to 30 years now. So I remember when I was 30 years of age, I went back through the list of cars like you do, you always keep a list of how many cars you've owned and I think at that stage when I was 30 I'd owned 68 cars. Um, but you always like tinkering around with cars and um, I got to the stage where I really wanted to just do something that, that I enjoyed. So I started the business and um, we've been open for two years. Um, the first car that I actually did through Coops Rod and Custom was a 1971 HQ U, which was a full rebuild. Um, since then we've done a 77 HX U. And then I got a request from a client to do a 1946 Chev pickup. So I started doing that. Um, I've got a 1946 Chev myself and Part of the build that I was doing on that, I started posting pictures on Facebook with the um, the engineering side, like the four-link rear end and the short and nine-inch and various bits and pieces that I was playing around with. <coughs> and um, just through Facebook and the advertisement through Facebook, I um, came across a few groups that were into the Chev truck. So I started posting some pictures on there, and I got a I got a request from a gentleman to build his 1946 Chev pickup. So I started doing that and um, just through the, the progress pics that I put on Facebook on under the Coops Rod and Custom Facebook page, um, I ended up with seven of them that needed to be done from anywhere as far as um, Druin, Wollongong, Young, Griffith, uh, Echuca, uh, Albury Wodonga, um, yeah, so basically it's, it's turned into the Chev Central for people, but you know, when I first started, I wanted to offer something that the average person could afford and do, 
Um, and I guess the good thing about Coop's Rod and Custom is it does everything that everyone else doesn't want it. So, you know, the, the beauty of it is, is that, you know, just the modern industry today, panel shops and, and restoration shops are more interested in the $1,000 they can get from changing a guard that takes 20 minutes rather than having a, a full rebuild car sitting in their, their shop taking up 12 months of their, their real estate. So, you know, inevitable that they put their prices up to reflect that because, you know, if you have a full rebuild in a, in a panel shop in town, they've got to pay their overheads and pay their rent and pay their staff. So the customer obviously has to pay for that because nothing in life is for free. Um, so I offered up something that was more realistic to what I thought the prices should be and, um, yeah, let the average Joe get the opportunity to own the, own the vehicle that he wants for a reasonable price. So um, I set out with the goal to um, basically offer the bare bones basic engineering and cab tub sort of um, stage on a vehicle where the, the client would supply the cab and the chassis and I'd give them back a, a cab chassis fully engineered ready to roll all they had to do is fit the engine and everything for just under 20 grand um, that was a couple of years ago i started doing that and so far it's worked out pretty good um, but what i do find is people are really um, indecisive so they come out and they they drop you off the vehicle that they want and by the time you end up give, giving their vehicle back, they've spent close to 40 grand on it because over time, you know, it does benefit them and, and it's probably a good thing that, you know, we're reasonably priced because it allows Joe Bloggs to go back and work full time in his nine to five job and while I'm working on their car here, they accumulate more funds and I give them back the vehicle of, of what they want. So they get to spend more money, you know, on on things that they want to put into their vehicle while it's going through the build stage of what they intended in the first place. Do you get many guys who started the project at home in the garage themselves and then they just realise they're so far and over their head and then they come see you, is that? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's amazing to see the enthusiasm that people have when they're building cars, but it's also, it's also interesting to see the lack of mechanical aptitude that people have and it's no fault to their own it's just modern society now is you know we pay somebody for everything you know so nobody has to really do anything themselves anymore and the interesting thing about it is that there is that much interest in old cars still out there and still live but nobody knows how to do anything anymore you know and what we do here with full panel work and, and ground up restorations where you can actually make something from nothing, that doesn't exist anymore. You know, the, the, the people who are able to make panels or make cars from just a drawing, they're all, it's a dying art. They're all, you know, pushing 60, 70 years of age now. Like, you know, there's no such thing as a coach maker anymore you no, know it's and all, all computer generated it's all, and, yeah, yeah yeah and when you go to a panel shop like i said they're not interested in building your car they're only interested in changing parts on your car and it's really sad because you know you get the young generation come through now and they'd much rather spend their time on their iphone playing video games and actually learning something that's of benefit so eventually this sort of trade is going to die out but on the flip side, it's good business for Coops, Rod and Custom because nobody knows how to do it. So they all come to places like mine, you know, where they can get what they need and, and the, the job gets done the way they want it. Yeah, that's awesome. And we're sitting in, uh, I'm literally sitting under your hoist right now with a Chev cab. So what have we got here? About four or five Chev trucks laying around? Yeah, up to five trucks now. I've yeah. got rid of two in the last couple of months. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we've got everything from 1946 through to 1954. So I got 1954 Chev from Batemans Bay oh, about a month ago. 
So that's the first 1954 Chev that I'm, I'm going to tackle. Um, varying degrees of, of build that they need. Um, I've got everything from just do the basic engineering to one day a, a Chev cab basically just turns up on the on the driveway out the out the front and three weeks later a bare chassis turns up and the guy rings me and says oh did you get me car yep oh, now I want you to build it so uh, that's gone from everything to you know complete wheelwood disc brake front end to nine inch rear end all brand new suspension LS2 6 litre um, yeah it's basically whatever the client wants is, is what they what they get so you know, the, if it's within their price range, they can they can do whatever they like. Yeah, that's cool. Well, let's, let's roll back um, the timeline a little bit. Tell me your first automotive memory. Uh, first automotive memory. I would have been 13 years of age, coming home from school, and um, my mother owned a 1973 Toyota Corona station wagon and um, we used to live just sort of out in the boondocks um, just outside of Aubrey Wodonga here and um, she pulled over on the side of the highway and said jump in the driver's seat and you can drive home so I spent the rest of the, the time driving home from school when I was 13 um, driving this Toyota Corona station wagon and got to the stage where oh, you know 12 months later I'd, I'd get in the um, Corona station wagon and drive down to the the Murray River there and go fishing and whatever and drive back home without mum and dad in the in the seat at all so um, that would have been my first memory the first car I ever owned was a 1977 HZ Kingswood um, that was my dad's car he gave it to me when I was I think 15 um, didn't really like that too much because it was a um, it was a six cylinder I polished the hell out of that car and it was mint. You know, looking back, it's amazing what you, you look back on and you say, if only I knew what I know now. Um, it was an absolute mint car and fully rebuilt 202 and Trimatic and interior and it was was brand new. And Dad did his real, he, he'd done his best to, to give me a good car, you know, for when I turned 18. And like anything, you, you don't appreciate what your parents do and. I looked at this car and it was a six-cylinder and didn't really like the idea of a six-cylinder so I convinced Dad that I didn't want it so he ended up selling it and we went out and had a look for another car and I um, come across a, an, an XB Coupe which was a GT clone um, full of rust down at the local scrapyard, thought it was the Ants Pants 351, brought Dad around and he said no there's no way in hell he's buying that. Um, so the, the next point of call was, uh, I think it was a 1968 Pontiac Parisian, so a big land yacht from, you know, bonnet from, you know, from here to breakfast. So I took Dad around to that to have a look at a Pontiac Parisian and, and Dad's always been, you know, the, the old school type where, you know, you buy Australian because anything American you just can't get parts for. So that was the old excuse back then was, oh, you'll never find parts for it and you'll never get this and you'll never do that. So. We did end up doing that, so my very first car that I owned was a um, uh, XB Falcon Fairmont with a 302 and a um, top loader. And it, it, was, it was real special, I loved this car because it, it came with a, a vertical gate shifter on it, which was basically a, a manual shifter that just operated backwards and forwards, didn't actually cut across the gates. Um, so it was the ants pants back then when I was 18 but I couldn't leave it alone I had it for two weeks and ended up pulling it apart and it was like a, a baby shit brown sort of colour and um, I pulled it apart and I had to wait till dad went away because he was in the army so he'd get it off on, um, off on um, exercise for two weeks three or four times a year so I um, I waited till Dad went away on exercise and that was my two week window so I stripped this XB down in the backyard and painted it um, canary yellow in the backyard and to this day I've still got photos around at Mum's like you know I had hair down my ass back then and in the backyard this big plume of canary yellow paint going all over Dad's brickwork in the backyard all over his brickwork of his, his house and 
painted this XB canary yellow and when dad came home it was all back together and all driving and you know sitting in the driveway um, so yeah I, I drove that to and from school for a, a few years um, my best mate had a, an LS Monaro two-door Monaro and um, we flogged the hell out of these cars you know we back then it was it was just so different like society was so different back then like you know we used to go down to the local local strip and and hang laps until like you know five o'clock in the morning and you drag down the, the main street and you you go and park in the tucker bag car park and you know you tee up your friends you know to have drags down a local quarter mile and all this sort of stuff stuff that you just don't see anymore yeah um you get your car impounded now yeah exactly yeah <laughs> Yeah. But you know, they were the good days, and um, yeah, the, the old Canary Yellow XB didn't last very long. I ended up stripping it back down and, and painting, it, painting it in two pack jet black and stroking the motor to, to 351 cubic inches and put an FMX and yeah, high stall in it and nitrous oxide. I had 250 um, horsepower Madden nitrous oxide system in it, and yeah, it was a bit crazy back then. <laughs> <laughs> Was was your old man a car guy? Like was no. he mechanical? No. No, no, that's the that's the interesting thing about it. Like dad dad was mechanical but he wasn't really into cars, so um yeah, I, I don't know where I got it from, but um yeah, I've always been into cars and always had, you know, poles and car magazines and you know, go to the summer nets and go to car shows and all that sort of stuff and you know, dad dad was pretty strict back then because like I said he was in the army so me and him didn't really have a, a real good relationship until he retired and that would have been you now I would have been probably 38 yeah you know, oh yeah probably about 35 when dad and myself really started to have a good good relationship um, just because he was in the army and he was a um, regimental sergeant major so you know you, you, you try and describe what somebody's like in the army and you, you just people have got no idea unless you really experience it and he's he's old school like the army's changed since then but um, he was old school so it was really difficult to sort of get along um, but yeah since he retired we've, we've had a really good relationship and he's he's now um, a secretary of a car club and he's got his own jag and yeah so he's starting to get into cars but it's a different different sort of um Era. He's he's more into like the stock and the old cars, and I'm more into the rods and the you know the, the street machines. So, um, but he still gets out there and has a look and kicks the tyres and gives me what he thinks is the right opinion that I should be doing. And yeah, it's it's pretty good. We have a good banter going on. Oh, that's awesome. <coughs> what about? Um, well, here's the question: Are these trucks pickups or are they utes? Okay. Um, so my opinion is if it's got a tub it's a pickup um i don't believe they're utes because i call a ute um unibody yeah like a unibody like a style side ute would be like a, a hq through to hz sort of era um depends on on how you want to describe it see everybody says that ute is australian so anything that has a cab and a tub should be called a ute a pickup is American. Um, however, these are what you would consider to be American-style pickup trucks. So, if you left it as a you know, dual-wheeled flatbed truck, right-hand drive that you get in Australia, you, you would say it's a truck. The moment that you take the cab off and put it on its alternate chassis or even shorten the truck chassis and then put a step side tub on the arse end of it, I would call it a pickup because it's no longer a truck. Um, in saying that, it also comes down to what your definition of truck is. You know, I call my Holden Colorado a truck. So I just say I'm getting in the truck and going down the road. Um, some people might call a B double a truck and not a you know not an f-250 yeah um so my opinion if if i put a tub on it i call it a pickup um if i have a hq style side ute i call that a ute um, a one tonner i call a ute but 
Yeah, no, definitely not a a Chev cab that is built and designed to look like a pickup. If that's what it's designed and that's what it's designed to look like, then you've got to call it what it is. Mm. You know? Yeah, I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. It's always a, an interesting yeah. conversation. People get very heated about it. <coughs> Yeah, you can have some good debates over mm. descriptive context of, of what things are classified as. Yeah. So when did you first get into a pickup? Like, is was that when your first clients came into you and you sort of started to get into this world? Or no, you... no, I um, I've had my pickup for uh, probably four years. So I've got a good mate who lives up the road and um, he had this pickup and, and started it and he put it onto a um, put it onto a HQ chassis but he shortened it and, and narrowed it to suit the cab. And um, he was one of these fellas who, who buys a lot of toys but rarely finishes them. Um, and he also had a, a um, international harvester so he came and saw me and he, he got me to do his harvester. So I built his harvester for him and... Um, that's the green one. That's the green one, yeah. That's yeah. the Patina green harvester that's on the webpage. Yeah. Um, so I built him that, that harvester and consequently he ended up with a, a basically an international pickup and didn't really need his Chev pickup anymore. So I convinced him to sell it to me. Um, prior to that I brought a 52 um, cab and chassis <coughs> so I ended up with two of them and um, what I ended up doing was keeping the best one and, and I I was going to build a pigeon pair so I was going to build one and I was going to build one for Kirby my partner and um, have a pigeon pair on, on both but you get to the stage where you look at it and you go, well, you don't really need two because you can only ever drive one at a time and, and realistically, you know, two Chev pickups are going to look just the same as one. So I ended up selling the 52 that I had with the HQ chassis that I brought and the LS1 to a guy in a Chuka. And it lasted on Facebook all of, I think it was about 15 minutes. So I put it on, like this is back then before all the prices started going through the roof and you know, they wanted ridiculous money for them. Um, but I put it on Facebook and it lasted 15 minutes and the guy rang me up from Machuca and said, oh, I'll come and have a look. So he drove from Machuca that night, had a look at it and consequently it was here. And um, he had a look and he, said I'll, I'll let you know so he drove back home and that night he said oh, I'll take you I'll take you a Chev pickup so that was sold and um, because it was on the HQ chassis I managed to keep the 52 Chev truck chassis that was for my 46 and that's the chassis that I sold you <laughs> that you brought back that I brought back <laughs> yeah um, <clears throat> So I went down the lines of I'll put the um, 46 on a on a Ute um, HQ Ute chassis, and I built all the, the subframe and, and put in a four-link rear end and all that sort of stuff. And the guy from Machuca ended up ringing me back and saying, "Oh, because I, I, I packed a I packed the truck up." got it all ready for him to, to come and pick up that following weekend and he rings me back up and says oh is the is the pickup ready for me to to collect I said yeah it's all packed up and the the LS1 was on a pallet on the back of the chassis all wrapped up and strapped down ready to go into the car trail and um, he goes oh do you want the good news or the bad news I said oh well what's the what's the problem here I am thinking oh he doesn't want to pay for it or he's bailed out on the idea or something like that he goes oh yeah no I'll um I still want the I still want the the job, but I want you to build it for me. So, part of the reason why I was getting rid of it is so I could get some more space in the shed to you know do other jobs. But I ended up <clears throat> selling it and then building it for the guy, and that's actually this one here that you're sitting under at the moment. Yeah. Um, but 
it's a it's an interesting fact about builds because you know they they tend to grow over time. So my my forty six I um I ended up selling you the fifty two Chev truck chassis, and by that stage I had seven pickup trucks that I needed to build, and. Um, you know, when you when you have a look at it and you go into like it's the same subframe, it's the same tub, it's the same tub subframe, it's the same engineering, it's the same, you know, side running boards, everything's the same on them. And you over time you you start to you don't lose the enthusiasm but you lose the the individuality about your build. So I decided I didn't want to build my 46, although it was easier, I decided I didn't want to build my 46 on a Holden chassis. So then I ended up hitting you up and buying my, my truck chassis back off you. Um, so that's going to be a completely different build altogether, but it's interesting over time how the build creeps depending on the individual and I guess that's that's a good thing for business but it's also difficult to plan. Yeah, so you've got a client waiting for his truck to be built next. Correct. And all of a sudden that goes from a basic truck yep. into a detailed build. Exactly, yeah. And he gets pushed back. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So, you know, you can have the best plan and the best intentions in the world but to be a good business you still need to keep the business going and you still need to keep your clients happy and this is a this is a classic example this truck here because it was only here and its intentions were to get the first stage of engineering done so all the difficult stuff because the guy was pretty pretty fluent and, and mechanically um, pretty sound in, in what he wanted to do and how he wanted to do it so he wanted basically the cab subframe and all the engineering done and me give him basically a rolling chassis with all the cab and everything mounted to the chassis so he could do all the body work and all that. And um, over time that job's grown to changing the floor in it, changing the firewall in it, repairing all the rust and then he rings up the other day and says, oh, I, um, I want you to do all the body work and the paint job and, and get it going now for me. And it's interesting to sort of suss out people's expectations of what it actually takes to get a car to the driving on the road stage. Um, some people think it just it's a two-week job, but when you really look at, you know, you are taking a a bare bones cab that's got no windows, no gauges, no wiring loom, no seats, no steering column, no carpet, no body deadener full of rust, yeah. no door handles, absolutely nothing. And you have to basically build that vehicle from scratch and give you everything that you need to, um, to get that truck engineered, compliant to the ADRs and driving on the road. And it's a huge effort. And you know, the, the biggest thing that people fall into the trap of, of you know, anyone can build a car, but not everybody knows how to build a car. And the simple mistakes that people make when they're building a car is, is incredible because unless you've done it before, you just don't know. And it's really a trial and error you know, sort of job because unless you know what sort of fuel tank to get, what sort of fuel pump to get, where to mount that fuel tank, what's going to actually work in that vehicle. It's trial and error, and you can, you can waste a bucket load of time and get absolutely nowhere, mm. you know. Yeah, so as a client coming to you, you've got, you've got this down pat. You've, you're at a point where you, you're even manufacturing and selling pieces that make other people's builds easier, right? Yep. So you can come in here, and I mean, you, most of your builds are following that HQ, HZ chassis. Yep. Um, you're building the tubs, 
Yep. Are we talking fiberglass guards most Fiberglass guards, yep. 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 Um, predominantly LS engines? Not really. um, yeah, but most of them have been LS engines. The, the 54 that I spoke about earlier, it's got a um, fully rebuilt 308 in it, yep. um, turbo 400, so it's going to be a naturally aspirated one. Um, it seems to be a common engine swap is the LS because they are so cheap and, and they make a huge amount of power for what they are. So unless you're old school and you, you desperately want to have that naturally aspirated engine, for the same amount of money that you spend on that naturally aspirated engine to make a third of the horsepower that an LS would make, it's a, it's a no-brainer to go LS. Um, so that seems to be the common request nowadays is to have an LS 5.7 in it. And because the, the Commodores now have, have gone through their lifespan, you know, 5.7 LS is basically, you know, old school engine now that yeah. they've got, you know, they're, they're up to 6.2 litre LS3 or LS9 now over in the States. Um, so you can pick up an LS1 for 900 bucks running you know you try and find a 308 for 900 bucks that doesn't need a rebuild so yeah it, it's it's cheap and it's reliable power and, and they are reliable like a an ls makes that good of a power that you get in a pickup because they're so light you get in a pickup and you can start that motor and you can go for a drive for the next six hours all day long every day and not miss a beat. Yeah. You know, and you use half the amount of fuel as to what a 308 naturally aspirated motor does. A lot of guys with, a, say, a big block, they're fuel injecting them now anyway. Yep. So. Yeah, they're putting the um, holy snipers on. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, big blocks are a different story. Like, yeah, <clears throat> yeah you got to like big blocks to put a big block in. You know, the, the torque on a big block is, is nice, but they are a heavy engine. Um, but it's, it's really just the bragging factor that you've got a big block, you know, everybody loves a 454. I've got a, I've got a 454 in the ski boat, you know, so everyone loves a 454. But again, you've got to, you've got to like the old style naturally aspirated motors to be able to go that when the modern day motor fuel injected computer operated is, it, it's, Dime, you know, it, it's it's a completely different ball game when it comes to those. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so effectively you're just taking a cool old looking truck and trying to make it as modern and drivable as possible. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So the, um, you know, without getting too far into the modern chassis to, to try and get away from some of the more intricate ADRs and, and the last thing you want to make it is a individually constructed vehicle. Um, so providing you don't alter the chassis too much, you, you maintain the ADRs of whatever year chassis is that you put on. So the HQ through to you know, HZ chassis seems to be a, a pretty good fit. Um, I like them because you can make a subframe that's all rubber mounted and you know, it's basically a, a clean swap and just sits on top. Um, they're done you know, different ways depending on who builds them. Um, I've always set my kits up so that if you had a look at my kits against an American pickup, the the dimensions would be similar. Um, some people basically, with, especially with their tubs, you know, put their tubs sitting on top of the HQ chassis, which basically makes it look like a box trailer. Um, and then by the time you put your guards on, your, your splash apron's about, you know, 300 mil high. And that stands out to me, like it doesn't look anything like an American pickup. Yeah. And that's, you know, let, let's face it, if, if you're going to rebody a Chev truck, doesn't matter what it happens to be on, what chassis, that's the look that everybody wants. They all want it to look like an American Chev pickup, otherwise you wouldn't bother doing it. So unless you sort of maintain those same sort of lines, you're defeating the purpose, because then it looks out of place. And you'll always get that expert come up to your car shows and go, oh, you know, should have done this different or should have done that different. <coughs> yeah. 
So the closer you can have it look like a, an American pickup, you know, to me is a no-brainer because you're always going to have a happy client because that's what they're doing. That's what they want. Yeah. You know, not everybody can go out and import a Chev pickup, left-hand drive, you know, small truck, you know, and and do the same. But these are a perfect, you know, I, I call them an in in between. Um, but yeah, the the Holden chassis is nice. Hilux chassis are the same, but again, you know, they only came out with four cylinders, so you've still got that, you know, little area there where you're putting a V8 into a chassis that was designed to carry a four cylinder. So to me, the Holden chassis is a much better choice. Um, but you know, there's different ways around things. Different states have different rules. Yeah. You, know, you can put a V8 into a into a Hilux chassis over in Victoria with no dramas, because you know, they run them as a hot rod. So your your trucks coming out of here are engineered in New South Wales, New South Wales and Victoria. Yep. So I've got um, engineering contact in in Victoria who does all my Victorian engineering certificates, and I've got a New South Wales engineer who does all my New South Wales certificates. Um, so they basically just come out registered as a you know, rebodied Holden pickup. Yeah. And so if if we look at what you're doing here, which I'd have to say whether it whether it's a Chev or a Ford or a Dodge, it's probably the most popular way to put these trucks back on the road that I've seen in Australia. Yeah, is, absolutely. Is the HQ chassis. Yep. Um, obviously any advice that we ever give on the podcast is general and people should check with their own engineer but we're talking double action door lock is a big thing yep what what else do we have to change to to bring that 1950 chev cab up to 1972 yep. chassis standard so uh, it basically comes down to whatever year the chassis is that you choose it can be holden ford toyota you know it can be a be a bloody you know Morris Minor chassis if you really wanted to if that way you were inclined but it really comes down to what year chassis you've chosen is the ADRs that that vehicle needs to comply to um, the biggest thing that you find is you do need to do your homework um, and when I say do your homework speak to somebody who actually knows don't put a you know, question Facebook. question out on Facebook and get every man's dog giving you their opinion because everybody's going to be different and one thing i've learned over time and, and i'm also a i'm also the president of our um, local car club here and one thing i've learned over time is people are really good at cutting corners and it doesn't matter whether it's you know road rules or engineering rules or um, you know, anything in life that someone can get away with, they can or will try and do. So they'll, people will look for the nearest loophole to try and get what they want achieved the easiest and cheapest the way they can do it. So if you put a post on Facebook, you'll get people telling you that you don't need to have double action locks on your truck and you don't have to do this, you don't have to do that. At the end of the day, the only person you need to listen to is the engineer, because they are the ones who are going to sign off on your vehicle, and they're the ones who are going to give you the authorization to be able to go and get it registered. So Joe Blogg sitting at his desk behind his computer telling you what you can and can't do is pretty much irrelevant. Yeah. So if you do take it to a shop, listen to the person who's building your truck, because they'll tell you what you need and they'll tell you what you need based on the engineer that they are using. Every engineer is different, okay? And that's the biggest issue that we have in Australia at the moment is that A, people interpret the design rules and the ADRs differently. People interpret what the notices are that come out from, say, the RMS, they interpret those in the descriptive context of those notices differently. <coughs> so you might get an engineer that signs off, you don't need burst-proof door locks. Happy days, if that's the engineer you want to choose, then choose him, listen to him, and do exactly what he wants you to do. Um, if 
you choose an engineer and he says that you need burst proof door locks, well, chances are that he's not going to change his mind. But by all means, question him. You can always question an engineer and you can always ask him to explain why the situation is that you need it. And he'll tell you. But at the end of the day, he's the one who's going to put his name to it. And you know, it's pointless arguing with them because A, you're not going to achieve anything and B, you might get them offside where they just won't do the job for you. Um, but yeah, if you do take it to a, a place to build, listen to what they say because they've built them before and they know what they're doing and it's a pretty smooth transition. Um, the good thing about taking it to a shop to build is that they use an engineer who knows the shop. So I've, I only use two engineers. I don't go use Joe Bloggs down the road or whatever. I only use the two engineers that I trust and they trust me. So. I know that the work that I do on this truck to the work that I do in the truck in six months time, my engineer's gonna sign off on it first time without any drums. And that's the difference that you'll find between somebody doing it in their backyard themselves and somebody doing it as a business. Um, you might have to take your you know, truck to your engineer four or five times and change it four or five times before that engineer is happy to sign off on it. And don't be fooled every time you take it to the engineer, it costs you money. Um, but yeah, there is a big difference between the engineers. Some are good and it also comes down to the money that you pay, like anything, like, you know, you pay, you pay three times as much for an engineer, you're more than likely to get you know, some of the stuff that you're supposed to have knocked off the off the list that you need to. You know, some engineers are that way inclined that they'll you know, happily take your money and and not do the job that you know they're per se supposed to do. Um, but you got to find an engineer that you trust. You got to find an engineer that knows what he's talking about. Yeah. And they are around. Um, and you've also got to find an engineer who's registered on the local. Um, roads and traffic authority website so if you're going to get a victorian engineers you need to get an engineer who's certified on the list as a signatory in victoria and the same as new south wales so you can't get bill and bob's engineering down the road who isn't registered as a signatory to do your engineer certificate because vic roads or new south wales will have a look at it and say sorry mate yeah can't get it registered go back and do it again and there's there's actually not a lot of VAS certified engineers no. in Victoria. You know. no. Um, no. It's, yeah, you need to find a good one or, or get a recommendation <coughs> from someone who's gone through the whole process. And yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, excellent. Um, so you, you're the president of the club. What's the local club? Uh, the local club is Tabletop Classic Cruisers Automobile Club. Um, we've got about 30 odd members here. Um, we range everything from uh, XP Falcons through to uh, 55 Chevs, 57 Chevs, um, Chev pickups, international pickups, um, your, your normal H-series Holdens, a, um, a Ford Sprint, so a US Ford Sprint. Um, yeah, a greater range of, of vehicles. Um, yeah, we have a club meeting every, every two months and we try to do club related stuff, um, you know, local barbecues and do meets and go to swap meets and stuff like that. Um, club runs. Um, we have a shed day every every month where we go around to somebody's shed and see what the individual's working on and give them a hand and yeah, it's it's yeah, a good cool. group. It's it's a it's a perfect size, you know, thirty odd members. Perfect size where it doesn't get too busy and, and you know you keep you can keep track of where everything's up to and, and what people are doing and, and stuff like that. When it when it gets to the 200 odd members, yeah, it becomes more of a business rather than a, a club, I, I feel. Yeah. Um, and are you guys registered to do like club rego? Yep, yep. yep. So we're on the um, club registration logbook scheme for New South Wales. Um, we're not registered in Victoria, um, but we're registered in New South Wales to do the club logbook scheme. Um, and that's a pretty good scheme that gives you uh, basically 90 drives a year 
Um, it's more than every second weekend. And the scheme's really good. It's um, We're also a member of the um, SMA, so the Street Rod Federation in New South Wales. Um, so we have a, a general meeting once a year with all of our clubs attend that in Yass. Um, but yeah, uh, it's it's pretty good. Like um, the 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 cast the, the car scene around Albury Wodonga has grown over the last ten years. Uh, there's a huge a range of you know cars out there now and, and individuals who love the cars and, and even the car um, shows that we've got turning up in Albury Wodonga has increased over the last few years. So yeah, it's it's really good. It's really good to see. Um, like I said, it, it's really, really good to see old school cars out on the road and getting used. Um, it was sort of a dying, dying art a few years ago, but you know everything from Melbourne up to Albury Wodonga now, and, and even Bright and Yarrawonga. You know the the rod runs and, and stuff that they have at Bright and Yarrawonga at the end of the year. Yeah, it's it's getting bigger and bigger. Oh, it's getting huge. Yeah. yeah. Well, we've got the bright rod run coming up. It's out in about six or eight weeks' time. Yeah. 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 So we'll see Yarrawonga's the same weekend as Bright. Yeah, well, they had a rift, didn't they? Yeah. 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 But there's still a, a heap of cars in Bright. Like we went to Bright last year, and there's um, yeah, heaps, heaps and heaps of cars go to Bright. Not so many in Yarrawonga. Like Yarrawonga's more of your old school rods. Um, but it's still a good turnout, good to go and have a look. Um, we normally go to Bright during the day and then Yarrawonga at night. Um, but yeah, it's good. Yeah. Mm. So your 46 is parked out the back. Yep. And you've got an interesting vehicle parked just out here on the side. Tell us a bit about that. Um, that's the that's the shop truck. So I brought that from uh, Wangaratta probably about 12 months ago, maybe a bit more than 12 months ago. So it's a 1943 Austin K8 um, split screen. Pretty rare, you don't really see too many of them around. Um, it's currently mounted on a 1977 Toyota Coaster um, bus chassis, running a 302 Windsor with an FMX Auto. So. The plan with that old girl is to turn it into a ramp truck. So it just happens to be that the, the cab on the chassis is small enough to actually have the, the V8 rear mounted behind the cab. But what it's caused is the height of the V8 air cleaner sits up probably about 300 mil above the chassis. So I can't exactly have a, a totally flat tray on the back. So the plan is to have a, a ramp truck with a beaver tail on the on the arse end of it just to um, make it something a little bit more unique and it'll all be enclosed um, tray it'll sort of curve around at the front bit of a retro sort of a look um, the interior will be just raw sheet metal with um, brass rivet bit of a, a bomber interior um, and then the plan is I'll have my um, 34 Chev delivery parked on the back of that to go to the um, the Australian Street Rod Federation um, 50th anniversary Street Rod um, International show I guess you want to call it that's um, in April 2021 over here on Gateway Lakes in Albury Wodonga so yeah that's the uh, that's the project for that there's a timeline. There is a timeline on that one, yeah. Um, so yeah, the the 30, 34 Chev and the shop truck will be 2021. And I've got a HQ sedan down the back there, which um, it actually had a timeline of the end of this year, but that's not gonna work out. So I'll probably say the end of next year for that one. Um, and then I've got a 71 XW that's parked over in the other corner. That's uh, I've had it for about 25 years, so it's a long-term project. And then me poor old, like you said, me poor old 46 is parked out the back, and it, she'll get done. I one reckon. Day. Yeah, one day. No, look, if I 
if I can get the if I can get the HQ and the forty six done next year, I'll be I'll be happy and I'll pretty much be on on plan of where I need to be. So yeah, the good thing about the the pickups, they're not hard to build. They're time consuming, but they're not hard. Um, Especially once you've got like you have at the moment, you've got you, your strategy set out and yeah. it's repeatable. Yeah. Like I know my truck, I'm doing quite a one-off. Yeah. So everything's just the slower step, and it's a That's this is it. what I want to do. Talk yep. to the engineer. Come back. You know. <coughs> yep. If if I build another one, which I hope to do after this one. It'll be a walk in the park. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. Now, I've got a, a ticket booked to America in November, and you had one of them last year, and you went to the big show. How was that? I did. Yeah. No, it was good. Um, five mates that we've, we've been good friends for oh, look probably close to twenty years. Um, we all. Uh, do this trip every five years, so we we got invited to the SEMA um, motor show. Um, so Coops Rod and Custom went over there and represented over there at SEMA. And we, um, if if you don't know SEMA, it's a it's a trade only event, so it's not open to the public. So you, you've got to have um, an invite to actually attend. Um, so we spent two weeks and we, um, SEMA was held in um, Las Vegas. So we flew over, um, it, was, it was pretty good. We had a stopover in, in New Zealand for four hours and it was only like a 12 hour flight from New Zealand to, Los, uh, to LA. So we ended up in LA and we, we spent one night because it was pretty late by the time we got in there and we, we spent one night in LA and we found the the dingiest, dirtiest hotel you could possibly ever find. I tell you, if it, it was, it was almost run down to the point where it was unlivable. But it was, it was all right for one night. So we spent the night in this place, and um, went and hired a, a bongo van, which was, I think, it was a Chrysler Voyager. And um, five of us piled into this bongo van. We we drove for four hours to Las Vegas. We spent a week in Las Vegas, and. Um, it was interesting because, you know, driving on the left-hand side of the roads, you know, a whole new experience. But once you, once you know how to do it, it's pretty easy. And the good thing about over in the states, they they paint the centre of the line yellow, or the centre of the road yellow. So providing you stay to the the right-hand side of that centre line, you you know what you're doing. So that's easy. But um. We ended up over in, in Vegas and we, we spent the week in Vegas and we rocked up to our, because we had a, an Airbnb. So we, we got this you know, two-storey marble slabbed mansion looking joint that had you know pool table and two-storey with a big staircase and all this sort of stuff. It was, it was a great house. We had it for um, a week and um, yeah, we spent four days walking around SEMA, so you know the you, you you can't really explain how big it is to somebody who's never been um, because it's just it's just absolutely huge. Like you know, it's it's to the point where you know they have basically four warehouses that are big enough that you can't see the back wall. You stand at one end, and if you filled that warehouse full of cars and trade displays and and people, bumper to bumper people where you physically cannot run, you have to squeeze past people and and walk around. That's pretty much what it's like for four days, and the build quality of cars is absolutely awesome. The the products that you can get over in the states compared to what you can get here in Australia. Nothing compares. It it really is. Um, Australia is pretty much ten years behind the states. It comes to just you know ways of doing things and production and, and tooling and, and all the other stuff. So it was really good to get over there and, and have a look. And um, not only did we we do that for four days, but we we flew, we flew from um, Las Vegas 
on the on the fifth day to Dallas, Texas, where we got um, VIP passes to the um, to the Texas 500 NASCAR race. So that was absolutely incredible um, to be able to walk around in the actual workshops and the pit lane where you know these cars are doing you know 200 mile an hour coming into pit lane and you're basically standing two meters away from this car when it pulls up just unbelievable and the noise is just absolutely crazy um, and to talk to the to pit crews and find out how they do things and, and just watch the way they do things and be so close to the actual um, you know the the environment that they're in and and the the action is is you, you never get an experience like that ever again like you know you can you can pay to go to the the nascar and you sit up in the nosebleed section on the on the um you know the grandstand and that but you know the the scene over in the states everything is big mm. so you know when you say grandstand you, you you think like you know the grandstands here in australia but you go to these grandstands in the States and you stand up on the top row and those cars basically look like little ants going around the track. You know, it's unbelievable. Um, so yeah, the VIP passes that we got were, were great. We were right in the middle of the oval where all the RVs and the pit crews were and get to have lunch with the pit crews and, and talk to everybody and just, yeah, really be part of the action. It was, it was awesome. And then um, we, we then basically hired another bongo van we we drove from dallas texas up through roswell and and done the um the route 66 all the way from dallas back across california and um back in la so that that was um, a few days doing that and did all the old route 66 because for those who don't know the Route 66 is now basically a four-lane highway. Um, you basically got to turn off that and do all the old historic Route 66 to get, you know, the, the vibe of all the old school, you know, um, service stations and diners and all that sort of stuff. So it's um it's a little bit sad to, to drive down there and see some of the diners and the, the um, hotels and all that that are closed and, and gone out of, you know, business because of the highway and... And stuff like that but you know it, it's still good to to say that you experienced it and, and, and got to do that sort of stuff yeah so yeah that was a good trip yeah so we've got another oh, I think that was last year so we've got another three years before we go back so we're already itching we're already talking about going back so I don't know whether we'll last five years <laughs> yeah. so as a business as Coops Ride and Custom you would have come back from there with with a whole new list of products and contacts that you can use for your business yeah absolutely so um my agenda was to go over there and make as many contacts as i could from the states because i buy a lot of stuff from the states so the more people i could get in contact the more um businesses i could get in bed with would be you know good business sense um so we came back with um, basically the, the only supplier for um, steel line rubber products which are basically rubber products that supply um, 52 or 46 to 54 Chev pickups. Um, a lot of those products can be used on Australian trucks, um, a lot can't but you need to know what you, what you want. Um, but the good thing about that is, you know, the, the states, the states have been building these trucks for, you know, 50 years. So everything's a good fit. Everything's designed to fit. Um, so yeah, we came back with the, the only um, supplier and the approved supplier for steel line products here in Australia. And I also came back with the, um, the only Australian supplier for bedwood uh, bed products, which are basically your timber um, slats and cleats and stainless moulds that go inside your, your beds of your, your pickups. Um, but it's, it's a retrofit product. It can be used in anything. So if, if you had an international or you had a, a Chev or a, a Bedford truck, you can use these products and, and put them in your, your bed to make it look authentic and, and make it look good. Um, 
the only the only downturn out of the whole you know thing with dealing with the states is basically the conversion rate you know because because the um, the current you know economic climate isn't as good as what it, it used to be the conversion rate's a bit of a killer um, so some of the products that you you buy they do become really expensive yeah. um, in saying that if you've got the budget and you, you want a good product, they're the best you can get. They really are. Um, so some people don't mind, you know. Some people don't mind buy, buying and, and paying for that sort of quality product because it does. It does make the difference. Um, it's just dependent on the individual, whether they can justify whether that difference is really worth the money. Mm. Yeah. No, I'm... Um I'm going over there at exactly the wrong time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Flying over and we're at the a ten year low for our dollar and I'm going over there to buy something. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. But that's what it is. You gotta do it. Yeah. 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 I'm no, looking forward to it. It should be good. Oh, it's great fun. Like it's I'd move out of the States tomorrow if I had half a chance. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. good. It's good. I've lived there now twice. Um yeah, I really enjoy it. But America gets a really bad rap on T V. Yeah. You know, I grew up as a kid thinking America was really shit. Yep. And uh, you know, I've lived in, I lived for five years in Canada and I lived two years in America. In, um, one in California and one in Colorado and, and they're just the nicest people. Yeah. You know, yep. they're just, they're just like whoever we run into down the street. Yep. Here, you know. Yep. Um, so yeah, they, they cop a bad rap. I think a lot, I mean, they, I'm sure there's, they're full blown bogans and idiots, but mm. we've got those as well. Exactly right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. exactly right. We've got, um, we've got good friends who, who live in Alabama and, you know, for, for what you would consider to be rednecks, they are the nicest people who would do absolutely anything for you. And they actually help build the shop. We had, um, we had six of them come over as part of the work that I do out at Defence and um, they came over and stayed, stayed in town and, and came out visiting and, and helped us out. and. You know, it wasn't even expected, but they, they came out and they, they helped move all the stuff into the shed and set up the workshop and, and put all the stuff up in the loft and just, it's amazing how just the right attitude and people who are willing to help you can go such a long way. And, you know, people in Alabama, they're, they're really friendly and they are really uh, family orientated and they will do absolutely anything to, to give you a hand when you need. Yeah. yeah, no, that's awesome. All right, well, that's been awesome having a chat. Tell me if people want to check out your work, uh, you got a Facebook page? Got a Facebook page, yep. So yep. it's Coops Rod and Custom. Uh, you type that into Facebook and it'll pop up straight away. And um, yeah, jump on there and give it a like. And yeah, if you've got any questions or whatever, you want a, a hand in, in helping build your, your truck or parts or whatever, just shoot us a message, I'm happy to help. Yeah, and you've got products on there too, you've got a bit of a shop. Yeah, yeah, so there's a shop on there that um, they do everything from hoodies to t-shirts, singlets, but I've also um, I've also started to, to send out a range of engineering components to, to help the backyard mechanic or the backyard builder, I guess you want to call him. Um, to sort of make life a little bit easier for those who want to actually do it themselves but don't know where to start. Um, so the the products that I've got up on the on the shop at the moment are um, basically internal seat frames for um, putting a HQ bench seat into a 52 Chev. Um, there's going to be a HT frame go up shortly. Um, I've got the biggest the biggest seller I've got at the moment is the um, burst proof door latch kit which you know it's really quite intricate and it does take a lot of time to actually make but it's a great product for somebody who wants to do it themselves comes with illustrated um, instructions on how to put it in but it's it allows you to take your your old door latch mechanism out of your truck and fit American style um, 46 to 54 door handles with um, mini bear claw um, burst proof door locks 
with internal door mechanisms and, and internal door latches that um, all basically bolt up, bit of welding that needs to be done. But look, at the end of the day, there's, there's nothing that you'll be able to find for these trucks that will just be a bolt up straight out you know, fit. So if you're good on a welder, then you can pretty much build a truck yourself. Um, yeah. But yeah, we've got that. We've got the, the running board plates that basically um, allow you to put your running boards onto a HQ chassis. Um, gusset plates for your subframes. Um, yeah, I think that's pretty much it. But yeah, that's all on there. Yeah, awesome. Is there a website? No, no website. Don't no. I don't know how to do that. No. So I'm not I'm not computer savvy. So Facebook's about my limit. Yeah. yeah. Sure. But, um, uh, well, appreciate the time, mate. You're doing a great job here, and um, keep it up. Yeah, too easy. Well, that's the show for this week. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. All information shared in our episodes is general, and you should contact your engineer for advice on your build. Please remember to rate and review the podcast on iTunes and share it with friends and fellow enthusiasts on Facebook, iTunes, or the good old word of mouth. I appreciate hearing feedback, good and bad, so please feel free to shoot me an email, classicpickuppodcast at gmail.com. If you are interested in advertising on the podcast and have a relevant business, please get in touch. And finally, if you have a project you're building, it can be hard to find the time to work on it. Just spend 15 minutes a day, even if you only unbolt one panel or mount one bracket. You'll be amazed at how quickly it all adds up. The music you hear in the background of this podcast is called Hammer On Down by Uncle Bonehead. Until next week, enjoy the ride.